Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. All around the room, people are immediately canceling their plans to go to lunch at a hamburger place today. (laughs) You know, maybe tacos sound better this afternoon. Well, good morning. Welcome to The Grove. My name's Stephen, and we are wrapping up a sermon series called Comparison Trap. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of comparison, where it comes from, why it exists, and what it does in our lives. Now, what we've said over the last couple of weeks is comparison is this this thing that we do naturally. We don't even really spend a lot of conscious thought thinking about the fact that the way that we typically navigate the world, the way that we probably and likely you have navigated the world for basically all of your life is to look left and to look right, to look at the people around you, to gain some sense of how you're doing. And so you survey the people that you see, maybe it's at work or maybe it's at home or maybe it's your brother-in-law or your family, And you try to determine where you are in relationship to where they are. And what ends up happening is you either feel like this inflated sense of pride about yourself because you're better than them, or you feel like this kind of sickening sense of shame about yourself because you're not as good as they are. And what we talked about happens with comparison is no matter where you fall on either end of that, you can never stop. It never ends. There's never a place that you can come to in comparison where you get to take a break. It's like this really messed up, broken treadmill that no matter at what point you step on it, it just speeds up faster and faster and faster until you're running at a pace that you can't sustain. Because inevitably, when you compare yourself to other people, there will always be somebody more fill in the blank than you. Better, smarter, funnier, richer, more successful, happier, kids get into better schools, whatever it may be, whatever the categories you find yourself comparing yourself to other people in in your life, there's never an end because there's always somebody more than you. And the problem with that is as you begin to compare what you have to what other people have and you realize that what you have isn't as much as what they have, you start to feel worse and worse about the things that you do have. And so it devalues the people, the things that you have in your life. You love your eight-foot ceilings till you go to your friend's house who has 10-foot ceilings. And then you go home and feel like you got a duck when you walk in the door because you didn't realize how low your ceilings were till you saw how high their ceilings were. This comparison thing is gross, and it not only affects our lives, but it affects our relationships, and it, and it starts to eat away at our heart. Now, I do have to do a bit of an apologetics about comparison because there is an amount of comparison that's normal. There is an amount of comparison that's healthy. It's the way that you look at other people and you say, oh, you know, I could probably have better disciplines in this area about that. There's like a healthy range of comparison. The way that you want to be a better version of yourself than you were before. Maybe the person that you compare yourself to isn't external, but it's internal. It's the version of yourself that you hope to become, that you wish you were, that you're always striving to get closer to. Maybe that's who you compare yourself to, the ideal version of you. And so there's a bit of it that it moves us and pulls us in the right direction. The problem is we don't have any control over how far or how fast it pulls us. And so inevitably, despite our best efforts, when we compare ourselves to other people, we end up right back on that treadmill running faster than we can sustain. Now, 
the reason that we do all of this, the reason this, that this comparison trap exists and the reason that it's so hard to escape is because I believe that we are all born with this innate wondering about this one particular question. Everything that you do in your life, all of the ways that you compare, all of the ways that you measure yourself against other people, all of the success that you strive for is ultimately driven at answering this question. Am I okay? Now, maybe for you, okay isn't the right word. Maybe for you, the word is worthy. Maybe for you, it's am I worthy? Am I good enough? Am I worth loving? Am I successful? Am I, am I, you fill in the blank, but ultimately it comes back to this idea of security around our internal identity. Am I okay? And the reason that this question exists in us, the reason that it's not just a me thing or a you thing, but it's like a human condition thing, is because of something that happened at the very beginning, the very beginning of the human story. In the Garden of Eden, there was this moment in time where the relationship between creator and creation was severed. That which was joined became split. And our ability to gain a sense of security about who we are at our very inner core, at the innermost part of our being, our ability to answer yes to that question, am I okay, was forever impaired because of what happened at the very beginning of time. And so everybody who was born into this human story, this human condition is born with this wondering, this searching for, this drive to answer this question, am I okay? And what ends up happening is as we work to answer this question, am I okay, it starts to manifest itself in these forms of insecurity, this sense of uncertainty about whether or not you really are okay. I think the best example I could kind of paint for us of the way this works is, have you ever gone to a party where you didn't know anybody and you went by yourself? So there's a, a category, a social category in my life where I have a lot of insecurity. On a stage in this environment, not an issue. But if you invite me to a function and there's gonna be a lot of people there and you're the only person I know and I show up by myself, Lots of insecurity. I show up and I immediately, maybe you do this when you attend these functions, you scan the room for the one person that you know. You're like desperately making eyes with everybody trying to find that familiar face. You know that sense of like panic, maybe it's just me, that sense of uncertainty about, okay, where's the one person I know here? And you just keep searching and searching and you look all around the room and you find yourself not knowing where to stand or what to do with your hands. You're like, maybe I should put them in my pocket or maybe I should hold something as a protective barrier between me and everybody else. I don't really know those people, but why are they looking at me? Maybe they recognize me. Should I go over and talk to them? I don't think I should go talk to them. Is the bathroom something? Maybe I could just sit in the bathroom and text the person that I know and be like, are you here? I'm here. I'm in the bathroom. Will you come and get me? Okay. Just a, this is what runs through my head if you ever invite me somewhere. You better be at the door, meet me down where I park, walk me up. I get insecure when I, I don't feel like attached to like an anchoring, grounding relationship. That dynamic that maybe you feel that clearly I feel when I attend a party and you're the only person I know, that's how we operate in our lives because we don't have that sense of security and attachment that we ultimately need. And so we spend all of our time 
looking left and looking right, trying to answer this question, am I okay? And as we try to answer this question, inevitably, we make a choice about what we're going to use as our reference point to determine whether or not we're okay. And so what I want you to think about this morning is who or what are you using as your reference point to tell you that you're okay? Maybe it's a number in a bank account. Maybe it's a zip code. Maybe it's a school system. Maybe it's a particular university and an acceptance letter that you're waiting on. Maybe it's that certain pose in yoga that you never seem to be able to master. Maybe it's a relationship with a certain person. Maybe it's finally getting that compliment from your sister-in-law or your brother-in-law or your parent. We all have someone or something in our lives that we use as a reference point to answer the question, am I okay? The problem is as we go on in our lives, that reference point often changes. And typically it's once we achieve that certain reference point or once that reference point says we're okay in this particular area, like that broken treadmill, we move on to another reference point. Because my guess would be if you dialed the calendar back 20 years or 10 years or five years, it's likely that you've already surpassed the previous reference point that you thought would tell you that you're okay. If I could get this job, if we could just have a child, if we could just, if we could just, if I could just, and then you get there and then the goalposts move and the way that you measure yourself changes, your reference point is constantly changing because you're never able to satisfy and have a lasting answer to the question, am I okay? Fortunately for us this morning, Christianity acknowledges this human condition, this need to answer the question, am I okay? And not only does it acknowledge that, it gives an explanation for why it exists, and it gives us an answer as to what our reference point should be. And so I just want to walk us through a particular passage of Scripture found in the New Testament. And in it, we're going to see where we should find our reference point. And as we unpack those words, it's actually going to help us understand and discover the secret to how we get out of the comparison trap. So this passage we're going to walk through is in the New Testament. It's a letter written by a guy named Paul. And Paul wrote about half the New Testament. So if you open your Bible, if you had a Bible, about the middle of your Bible, you find a bunch of maps. Just past all the maps is the beginning of a New Testament. And Paul wrote a bunch of letters to a bunch of churches kind of in that kind of 20, uh, that first century area around Israel. So kind of a little bit of the Roman area and the Greek area and the Palestinian area. Paul writes a bunch of letters to churches that he finds. And as he writes these letters, he begins to help them address issues that they're struggling with. And in this particular case, the letter that we're going to look at is a letter that he wrote to a church in Galatia. Now these were Roman citizens. These were people who weren't kind of familiar with kind of the Jewish culture that Jesus and his disciples came out of. But sometime after Jesus's death, word of Jesus's death and resurrection spread to this area. And so this, this Roman people who in a lot of ways, their lives kind of look like ours, being confronted with this message about this guy named Jesus, this Jewish rabbi who was killed and then resurrected. And they're trying to understand what this means for them. And so we're going to jump into what Paul says. He's trying to explain all that's just happened about 20 years prior with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So he says this to them. When the fulfillment of time came, God sent his son, born through a woman, 
and born under the law to redeem those under the law. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you go, well, I don't know what this means. Let's move on. What Paul's trying to say to these people at this time is there was this thing that exists in the Jewish world and the Jewish religious system that helped them understand and answer the question, am I okay? And it was a whole bunch of rules and laws that were given to them by a guy named Moses. And so the goal in the Jewish world was to follow as many of these rules as possible because the more rules that you followed, the more okay you were with God. The problem was, is as time went on, they realized that some of these rules were really hard to follow. And the more that they tried to follow these rules, the more that they struggled and the more that they realized that not everybody could follow all the rules in the same way that everybody else could. So what inevitably happened is the same thing that happens in our lives. They looked left and they looked right and they started comparing themselves to all of the other people and their ability versus everyone else's ability to follow all of these rules. And because there were people that they could follow the rules better than, and there were also people that they could follow the rules not as well as, they begin to develop this insecurity around the question, am I okay? So Paul says, here's this dynamic that God sends Jesus into. Everybody is struggling with all of these rules because they're struggling to answer the question, am I okay? The rules were intended to make it easy for people to understand that yes, you're okay. But that's not what happened. So God sends Jesus in. Paul goes on. He says, not only does he send Jesus in under the law to help those under the law, but he does it to redeem them. Now, this word for us, it's just a word that exists in our Bible and we don't use it in our normal language. But the word back then, 2,000 years ago, it had this profound connotation that everybody who heard it understood. Imagine that your, fam that your family has a family business. And imagine that your family's business is struggling. And so as a way to kind of settle some debts and to move out of a financial instability, you sell part of your family business. Now, let's say that sometime later, your family becomes successful again in the part of the business that you retain. And you decide that you wanna buy back the family business or that part of the family business that you sold. That would, be, that would be the proper use of the word redeem. You would buy back what was originally part of yours. You would go and buy back a field that you sold because you were trying to pay off some debts. You would go and buy back part of a business, a vineyard, an orchard, whatever it was that your family owned that you sold off that originally belonged to you. What Paul's saying that God did with Jesus is he sends this guy into the world to buy back what was originally part of God's family. God's family owned and had relationship with all of us. But because people struggled to keep the law, they got disconnected from God's relationship and God's family. And so God sends Jesus back into the world to bring people back to God. It's, this, it's not just a financial term, but it's this deeply relational term. And so if somebody in your family got separated from the family, it would be the role of the leader of the family, the patriarch, to go out and to bring that person back into the family. That's what it meant to redeem someone. It's like if your child got lost at a theme park. The efforts that you would go to to track them down and to find them so that your child wasn't lost and to bring them back into relationship and connection with your family, that's the same idea. So Paul's saying, listen, here's what happens. God had this whole plan and he gave us these rules to follow so that we could have a relationship together. But it actually didn't work the way that God had hoped. Those rules actually separated people from God's family. 
We used them to create divisions and say, you're not as close to God as I am because I follow more rules than you do. And it inserted all of this insecurity in our lives because some of us compared ourselves to other people and we were better or worse. And so God's like, okay, enough of that. I'm sending Jesus and he's gonna bring everybody back home. Everybody's coming back to the family. And Paul says, this is what happens. God sends Jesus to redeem those under the law. Why? So that we could be adopted. Now, in the first century, they didn't adopt babies. They adopted adults. And the reason that they adopted the adults was not on behalf of the adult. Typically, the way that we understand adoption now is adoption is something the family does to provide for, to care for the child. It's something done on behalf of the child. It was the exact opposite way that it worked 2,000 years ago. Adoption was something that the family did out of necessity because they lacked everyone in the family that they needed. In particular, they lacked a male heir. And so it was often the case in these Roman households that a family would feel a sense of incompleteness because they didn't have a male heir. And so then they would find a person, a male, someone, to adopt, to bring them into the family. And once they were in the family, now the family was complete again. This is what Paul's saying God feels about what Jesus did. Jesus goes out and brings everybody back into the family so that everybody could be adopted. And finally, once and for all, God's family would be whole again. There would no longer be these people who felt like they were separated from God or disconnected from God, wandering out there by themselves, but God's family is only complete when everybody's back into relationship. When everybody comes home, then things are good. Parents, if you have kids in the home, I know right now it will feel like you would love for them to go away for a period of time and you have the house to yourself. But there will be a time, parents who have kids who are no longer in the home know this, there will be a time when there's nothing that you want more than to have your house full again. To have everybody come back home, maybe it's for a holiday meal, maybe it's for a birthday celebration, that sense that you feel when everybody's back in the house and things are as they should be and the world is right again and everybody's getting along and the kids aren't fighting and the sense of peace that you have, that's what God's after with all of us. And he says, I'm gonna send Jesus in there to bring everybody home so we can be one big happy family. Now, Paul goes on. He says, this is what God's trying to do. And because God sends Jesus to do this, something profound happens in each one of us. He says, because you are now sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now this word Abba is a word, it's an Aramaic word that there's no real good equivalent for in the Greek in which this was translated. It's a word that Jesus uses to refer to God in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying before he's about to be crucified. And it's this deeply intimate word, it's this relational word. It's a word that if I encouraged you to pray to God using this word, it would feel a little uncomfortable because of how intimate it was. It would be like praying the word daddy. Be like, all right, let's all bow our heads. Daddy, we come, but it would feel, for some of us, it would feel a little uncomfortable because of how intimate that word is. But this is the relationship that Jesus had with God. And so God's saying, not only did I send Jesus to bring everybody back into the family, but now everybody can have the exact same relationship with God that Jesus does. There's no divisions, there's no hierarchy, there's no sense of merit that allows you to get closer in relationship to God 
An heir means that you were on equal status as everybody else, even Jesus. So even though there's moments when you feel like maybe you've lost a little bit of God's love, or there's moments where you go through life and you compare yourself to other people and you feel like because of the things that you've done, you're not worthy to maybe show up to church, maybe you're not good enough to be a part of that Bible study or to teach people or to talk about God or even to have a relationship with God, like if God knew what I did, he wouldn't want any part of me. Paul's saying there's none of that anymore. All of that's gone. Everyone, because of what Jesus did, is now on equal standing with God, just like Jesus. And that's supposed to be good news for all of us because that means all of the ways that we compare ourselves to other people, all of the ways that we try to measure up to make sure that we're good enough, you don't have to do that anymore. The insecurity maybe you felt when you walked in here this morning because, well, I may be not as like, churchy as some of these people or as religious as some of these people and I don't really know how I'm supposed to dress or where to stand or maybe you do the whole script that I do when I walk into a party. The thing that you feel sometimes when you show up to church Paul's like, you don't have to do that anymore. If you can have security around any area of your life to know that you're okay, you can most trust that it's with God. You can most trust that between you and God, you're okay. And you're so okay that you're just as okay as Jesus and God are okay. That's what Paul's saying here. So, because of this, you're no longer a slave, you're no longer an outcast your son and daughter. You are a part of the family. And if you're part of the family, you get to be an heir of God. That just means you're on equal standing with Jesus and you're worthy to receive all of the inheritance that God has to offer. So Paul says, because of all this, now that you know this, now that you know God, or better yet, now that God knows you, Now that the relationship has been restored, you've been invited back into the family, you were on equal footing as everybody else, including Jesus. Now that you know this, how could you turn back again to the worthless systems of the world? Why would you ever compare yourself to anyone else ever again? Now that you know how your heavenly father feels about you, that he loves you and cares about you so much that he would send his son into the world so that we could all be sons and daughters of God. If that's true, which it is, you don't ever need to compare yourself to anyone else ever again. Why would you dare go back to that broken treadmill of comparison that just speeds up faster and faster and faster and leaves you without any peace or any security that makes you feel anxious and nervous and uncertain how would you go back to that? Your identity is secure. And let me tell you once and for all, when it comes to you and God, you're okay. You're okay now, you were okay then, and tomorrow you're gonna be okay too. There's nothing that you have done or will do or could ever do that will change the fact that between you and God, you're okay. So all of the objections and all of the reasons and logic that you use to explain why you're not worthy doesn't count. Between you and God, you're okay. Paul ends it with this. He says, why would you wanna be slaves to comparison again? 
Why would you want to be slaves to that sense of insecurity ever again? Why wouldn't you just enjoy the status that you've been given? You're a part of the family. You can get off the treadmill. Doesn't matter how high you've climbed or how far you've fallen. Between you and God, you're okay. So if you only hear one thing this morning, I know some of that language was dense. What Paul's trying to say in two sentences, or one sentence is this. When you know whose you are, when you trust whose you are, when you believe at your core whose you are, you don't compare who you are. When the knowledge and the truth and the reality of the fact that between you and God you're okay moves from that screen to your brain and into your heart, you'll stop comparing. Or when you feel the temptation to compare yourself, all you have to do is remind yourself whose you are. Could you imagine how different your life could look if you let go of the need to compare yourself to other people? If you begin to believe at your very core that you're God's, that you're a child and an heir of God's on equal status as everybody else, including Jesus. Could you imagine the peace that would come from that? The way that anxiety could just melt away if you truly believed, if you truly understood, and you begin to trust and to live out the truth that between you and God, you're okay? It would change your life. It would change your actions. It would change your relationships. Because if you stopped comparing yourself, you'd stop needing to compare anybody else especially the people closest to you. Maybe if you stopped comparing them, they wouldn't feel the need to compare themselves either. It's all intertwined like this gross spider web. So that's my prayer for us this morning. That as you, we leave this place, we begin to deeply believe and trust that because of what Jesus did, between us and God, we're okay. And that means every day for the rest of your life, you're okay. You don't need to gain anything else. You don't need to prove anything else. Because it, with the person that matters most, with the relationship that matters most, you're okay. Let me pray first. God, we love you. We come here this morning grateful for the opportunity to be reminded that you love us. Sometimes, God, we doubt it. Most of the reasons we doubt it is because of our insecurity about who we are. We don't feel enough. We don't feel worthy. We feel flawed or broken in some way. And the truth is, we are. But for whatever reason, because of your gracious love, that didn't stop you from sending your son to bring us back into the family and to settle and secure once and for all the fact that with you, we're okay. God, help us to trust this, to believe this, and to live it out in our lives and in our relationships each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.